At the bottom of your page 5 of section 4, we have a very important matter to conclude. Uh, we talked about the very, very solemnness of what God has had to provide for the great mass of moral beings that he's created and that have been brought into existence who refuse to think through their position and recognize the intelligent existence of God. In my theological training, and perhaps in yours, I was taught that there are three, con there are three bases of eternal punishment. First of all, souls are to be sent to hell, I was told, because of Adam's sin. And Adam's sin is supposed to be imputed to the whole race of mankind. There were two theories advanced down through the centuries. Augustine had the idea of some kind of a biological uh, entity of some sort, whereby Adam acted for the whole human race, and therefore his guilt is imputed literally to every single person who ever shall be born. We had, uh, in post-Reformation times, uh, the federal headship theory coming to into acceptance in many circles. And Adam is supposed to have been the federal head of the whole race. And his fall and sin is supposed to have been imputed to the whole human race. So men are sent to hell in the first place because of Adam's sin. Then the second reason, according to these theories, we are sent to hell for what we're born with. And they want to quote such a passage as Ephesians 2.3, as you already have heard a number of times, I'm sure. They want to say, by nature, the children of wrath, even as others. In other words, God is supposed to send people to hell in the second place because of being born with this entity called sin. We have indicated that it is common to conceive of sin as an entity in the personality that causes the action. And then the third area of guilt is supposed to be our own actions, which is very obviously the revelation of the Bible. I am thankful to God to be fully persuaded that the uniform message of the Bible is the guilt of our own actions only, and that God is not going to send anyone to hell for Adam's sin, and he's not going to send anyone to hell for being born with some kind of an entity which is supposed to be sin in itself. We didn't choose to be born, and to try to represent these things before the thinking world of mankind is indeed a very distressing thing. And when I, in my early ministry, I tried to have these ideas on my mind, but it was indeed a heartbreak. And so the uniform message throughout the whole Bible is that God calls us to account for our own actions and the enlightenment we've had in, in the guidance of our life. And there isn't anyone that can ever oppose this. And this is what God has declared from beginning to end. And uh, certainly no one can argue with this position, can they? And so we just have a couple of scriptures. We have Isaiah 3, 11 and 10 and 11, for example, indicating that it is our own actions that we are to be called to account for, not the actions of anyone else. And uh, we have these words here as a sample. Say to the righteous that it go well with them, for they will eat the fruit of their actions. Woe to the wicked, it will go badly with him, 
for what he deserves will be done to him. Notice we give you quite a few passages there uh, indicating this among many, many others. And this is the uniform message of the Bible that God calls us to account for our own actions only, what we have done in our own personalities and the enlightenment we've had been, been privileged to know about. We have a very common New Testament passage in, in Romans chapter uh, 14. And here we have uh, from verses 10 to 12 this assertion that we shall account for our own selves not for Adam's sin, nor for anything we're born with. Indeed, we have suffered greatly because of Adam's sin, as we'll see in our next consideration here. But as far as guilt is concerned, it is our own situation. We shall all stand before the judgment seat of God, we read in verse 10. As it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall give praise to God. So then, each one of us shall give an account of himself to God. And this is the uniform message of the scripture to be sure. We have some statements that uh, the sin of one shall not be imputed to another. And uh, we have uh, such a thing as Ezekiel 18 verses 4 and uh, 20 uh, as a sample of this group of scriptures. The soul that sins shall die, we read this great conclusion there. And then in verse 20, the person who sins will die. The son shall not bear the punishment of the father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him himself. And so we have these uniform declarations. And the, the passage they claim that teaches the imputation of Adam's sin is, of course, found in Romans 5, 12 to 19. And uh, we need to investigate uh, what this passage affirms in this matter. Uh, you may have some Bibles whereby they actually have in the margin uh, an identity of our own guilt with that of Adam. So on your page 6 of section 4, we try to summarize this uh, important passage. Obviously, it is a difficult passage. But what it is trying to teach is this, it appears. It is trying to teach that, that the sin of Adam as the head of the race introduced some great influences upon all succeeding uh, members of the human race and very strongly influenced us uh, to follow his choice and to uh, make our own self supreme. The other part of this passage is that the Lord Jesus has come and exerted another very, very strong influence to induce us to forsake our sin and be reconciled to God. So here we have a parallelism that we are subject to two very, very strong influences is what this passage is trying to tell us. And notice we use the, the thought of two words here. We have the thought of occasion. We have the thought of cause. And we are the cause of our actions, as the scripture indicates. Occasion is the opportunity of our circumstances or our choice. 
And so the concept is that Adam was the occasion, not cause, of our action. His uh, sin uh, introduced complications into the human race and became a strong influence for us to follow his choice of selfishness. However, we ourselves are the cause of our action. On the other hand, dear Jesus came into our world and exerted a very strong occasion, a very strong influence toward the turning from our sin and being reconciled to God. And so we represent, this is a parallelism, you notice. With, on each side, we have uh, the, the, comp, the comparison that's being drawn here. We have the statement, the first man, Adam. We have Christ, the last Adam. And here are the two strong influences that we're uh, subjected to. And uh, notice the uh, article, the many, on each side of the parallelism. And this, of course, singles out a group. And so the statement is that Adam's sin influences the many. Everyone, of course, is being referred to here. We have this twice, you observe, verse 15 and verse 19. Then you also have the Lord Jesus and his atonement work and his influence also uh, extends to the many. Now, of course, the many on each side of the parallelism is the same group of people. But the real emphatic statement here appears in verse 18, where you have the word all men, the words all men on both sides of the parallelism. And under no circumstance can you say that all men on one side refers to everybody and all men on the other side refers only to those who are saved. This, of course, cannot be affirmed in linguistics. You have the same all men on both sides of the picture. And this is the thing that tells us that this is an influence, not a cause, not an imputation of any kind. And so Adam influenced all men, all of us, have been strongly influenced, as we saw in our last lecture, to follow the choice of selfishness. Then Jesus comes in, and his work is for all men, and he influenced all men, as we've indicated, the Holy Spirit making real the compassions and the love of Christ throughout the whole world. And so all men on that side must refer to everybody too, just like all men on the left side refers to everyone. And so this cannot be an imputation. It cannot be a cause. It must be an influence because we have the parallel influences do we not? Then notice in, uh, as we translate uh, Romans 5.12, it simply makes the statement that death did pass through unto all men. Here's the statement that happened. And of course, it's a, it's a spiritual death, a separation from God that's being referred to here. Because, or for the reason did, all did sin. Now, some of your margins want to say, all did sin in Adam. But there's no authority whatsoever for that addition. It's merely a, an aorist tense in the Greek, an indicative mode, staking a fact. So death or separation from God has come for all men simply because all have sinned. And this was the position of this great moving revival that I was so excited to work into at the first half and throughout the last century, really, with its very extensive uh, conquest of so many hearts and lives. Now notice very interestingly, we have the same verb and the same tense in Romans 3.23. 
which is the conclusion of the first three chapters. Remember he said the first three chapters of Romans has for its purpose to prove that all are under guilt and condemnation. And then it, it sums it up in verse 23 of chapter 3. For all did sin, making a statement of fact. And then we have a present tense and are continually coming short of the glory of God. So here we have the same verb. We have the same tense, making a statement that all have sinned and thus have become uh, guilty before God. Notice also in Romans 3.12. Here we have a little different verb, but the same tense. And simply making a statement again. That all did turn aside from the right way. Together they were made useless or did become depraved. And so these verbs merely narrate a fact. Say nothing about Adam's sin being imputed to us. Merely making a statement that guilt has come upon us. And separation from God has come upon us. Because of our own action. And then developing this strong influence on each side of the parallelism. You don't know what this means to me. It would be unthinkable to try to go out and charge individuals with the sin of another. Whenever you have a proxy vote, they always send you a card for your approval that someone will vote for you, don't you? Don't they? We didn't exist to have Adam vote act for us. And so obviously he acted for himself in his own responsibility. But his wrong action has affected the whole race, of course. And so this becomes so important to distinguish, it seems to me. Now we have the sad fact in the bottom of this page. That the duration of this awful punishment is eternal. We have a number of Bible teachers trying to avoid this. I haven't the slightest reason how this, uh, understanding how this could be. Because we have the same eternal used on both sides of things. We have eternal life. Uh, pronounced upon those who are reconciled to God. And then the same word is used upon those who are not. For example, Jesus said in Matthew 25, 46, These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And this is a very solemn matter, is it not? And also Daniel mentions the same thing. Now we need quite a revision in our thinking here. As we mentioned in the bottom four lines of this page. We are not to make up our mind on man's inability. And then try to justify God for eternal punishment. This is what's commonly being done. And of course you can't. If I'm born with a causation and I can't help but sin... Who shall ever justify God to send me to an eternal punishment for not doing what I can't do? So this is an exact justification of sin, isn't it? And we are to completely reverse our evaluation here. As we mentioned in the last sentence, we are to see what a loving God has pronounced. We ought to understand the character and, and love of God, are we not? 
And since a loving God has pronounced this, these consequences, it must be that we are terribly able to obey God and refuse to. And this is the only conclusion you can come to. We have this reinforced in the book of Revelation. When uh, the saints of God in God's presence see the awful judgments being executed upon the world of the ungodly. What do they say? Righteous and true art thou, thou king of saints. In other words, they're going to have a great reevaluation of the ability of our personalities. And they're going to see that we have been guilty of revolting against a loving God in all that he could do. And this is the way we must evaluate it, mustn't it? A few years ago, when I was lecturing in Denmark, during the oil embargo, there was a very severe penalty for driving your automobile above about 40 miles an hour, I believe. It was 2,000 kroner. In the first place, nobody drove on Sundays. And the, and, and the country's in desperation. They're making most of their electricity from oil, and here it's shut off. If you calculate the equivalency and the fact that the Danes work harder for their money comparatively than we Americans would seem to work, this would come to about $500 penalty for driving over about 40 miles an hour. And believe you me, this worked on the highway. These were consequences. How are you going to analyze this? Are you going to say more? There's nothing serious. The country's unreasonable. The government's unreasonable. Why should I get this kind of penalty for driving fast? This is completely wrong, of course. The government's in trouble. They're trying to do the best they can for, their, for the whole uh, family of the country. They realize they're in desperation. They have to get the most out of everything they have. And so you evaluate the seriousness of the event by looking at the penalty or the consequences. And this is the approach we must have. We have a loving and a reasonable God. Abraham said, shall not the God of all the earth do right? We have dear Jesus calling God in prayer, O righteous Father. We have a loving and a God, a wonderful, faithful God who is, who is manifested himself in all these thinkable ways. And he's pronounced his dreadful consequence upon rebellion against his loving domain. The only answer is, humanity is dreadfully able to obey God and refuse to. And so inability is rather a will not than a cannot. And this is the only conceivable way we can justify the situation. And as we have indicated, when individuals are not willing to obey God, they're looking for excuses. And you can't conceive any better excuse than inability, can you? And so we are very solemnly reminded of God's great kindness and love 
as to how he wants to awaken us. No wonder Paul couldn't be wasting his time. He said, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, the responsibility of God as a moral governor, we persuade men. The wonder he occupied himself continuously in sacrificial labor to go out and win as many as he could. And we indeed should, of course, have that same tender compassion toward our fellow men to accomplish all we can in helping everyone to escape from the wrath to come. We have so many different passages. We need to flee sin vigorously. We need to escape and rush away from it. These are the many, many descriptions we have in the New Testament, are they not? And so now we have come to the bottom of our thinking. And we're so thankful that God didn't leave us here. We're so thankful that God commanded His love toward us. Even though we were pursuing away from God and following our own selfish ways, God was pursuing us with His love. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates His love on love toward us. A present tense here, He's demonstrating and manifesting His love. In the Bible, we yet sinners, are we sinners continually being? Christ died for us. And so now we direct our thoughts very happily, very thankfully, to reconciliation as to what God has planned to do in His great love and how He has solved these great problems. And how he wants to deal with us, not according to our works, but according to his great abounding love. So Paul had his great urgency, didn't he? He said, we beseech you, we're begging you. On behalf of Christ, Christ is not here anymore. And so we're begging you, be reconciled to God. This is the beautiful key verse that we have before us in this section. How God wants to reach out and bring us back into his heart. Give us these lovely experiences that he had planned for us. We have at the heading, as usual, some important passages. God be rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us. Rich in mercy. What a beautiful statement. And then we have the key passage in this study which are Romans 3, 24 to 26. We will read this as we consider the problems that God faced in the solution of this. We have this general passage in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now we mention in the first paragraph something about this verb to reconcile. And it conveys the idea of a change or an exchange. To change one thing for another. Thus to cause one thing to cease and another to take its place. To reconcile those at variance. To adjust to difference. To restore to favor. And the verb has a prepositional prefix to it which means an emphasis on reconciliation. So certainly reconciliation must be real, must it not? 
It must bring us back into fellowship and living contact with God. And uh, we give you the passages using this compound word. We also mention another additional prepositional prefix. So here you have two prepositions prefixed to the Greek verb here. And of course this means for emphasis, a double emphasis you might say, to reconcile completely away from our former way of life. So this is what God wants to do in solving the problems, is it not? To bring us into his tender heart of compassion where we shall be happy children and where the problems shall be solved. We shall be grateful and thankful for our wonderful God. We raise the question first. What is the objective to be achieved in man's reconciliation? What's God trying to do? How much of his salvation does he plan to bring about? This would be very much disagreed upon in theological leaders. Does he plan to reconcile us to himself? To settle the arguments? Is reconciliation real? Is the gospel a means of getting people to heaven? And then dealing with the problems there? Or is the gospel a means of dealing with the problems now? And reconciling us to God now? So we'll feel at home in heaven. My, there's been a lot of theological development in this area. It seems like as we face reality, God cannot have a solution that does not solve the problems. Because he has the solution to all the problems, doesn't he? And so it seems very obvious that the gospel must bring together God and man again in the beautiful relationship of love that God had planned. We had this distressing, disturbed triangle relationship before us where man said he didn't want any more of God. He wanted to tend to his own affairs. He wanted to make himself happy. He didn't want to give to his fellow beings either. He wanted them to make him happy. And this is the area in which God is pursuing, is it not? Now, I can't conceive that any salvation can exist in this state of affairs. <clears throat> There can never be happiness here. There can never be intelligence here. There can never be peace, of course. Peace has got to follow righteousness. So we certainly say that whatever God's going to do in reconciliation has to bring an end to this state of affairs and has to bring about the only intelligent position we can conceive of whereby we recognize God for who He is 
and we're willing to adjust ourselves to God, if He can only find a way to deal with our past problems. And so, it seems we can form no other opinion then this happy vertical relation must be established first of all. And then the happy horizontal relationship secondly. You remember John in the first epistle has something to say about this. If we don't love each other, it's a testimony we don't love God. And so whatever God's going to do in reconciliation would certainly have to solve the problems. If these problems are going to be solved... What has to be done is the next question. How is this going to be done? And here we try to develop this on the next few pages. What has to occur to bring us about? And we use the word means. Not that there's any merit in means in themselves but that this is a method by which God can accomplish what He sees He needs to accomplish. And so we look at your page 2 of your section, Roman 5. And here, of course, we're faced with our guilt. The guilt of past sin must be forgiven. There's not a thing we can do in the future to apply to the past. If God can't find a way to forgive us, we can't be reconciled to Him. When we talk of the salvation we're representing, uh, we are criticized for representing a salvation, they say, of grace plus works. Now, there's no basis for this accusation. We can't do any more in the future but be intelligent. We can't do money more than recognize God for who He is, each other for who we all are. So we can't build up any credit in the future, can we? All we can do is fulfill our obligation. And so nothing we do in the future can credit to the past. If God can't find a way to forgive us, then there's no hope. And remember how Jesus said the great mind of God is recording these many, many events. So here are millions of events recorded in the great computer mind of God. And if man, as we've said, can build these immensities to record the information of a whole nation, and we have the eminences of the dimensions of God, don't we? And think of the ability of God's greatness is unthinkable intelligent to record all these things. And that's the way the New Testament represents it from beginning to end. We, we re represent a few uh, moving passages here. God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. According to my gospel, Paul wrote, Romans 2.16, is appointed a man once to die, and after this the judgment, Hebrews 9.27. And so here we have recorded against us all these millions of actions that we have accumulated in our selfish lives. 
So if there's going to be reconciliation, God has to find a way to forgive, doesn't he? We have such a beautiful passage. Among Paul's later writings, Ephesians 1, 7, redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Now God can't solve anything unless we quit the trouble. And so there has to be an end to the cause of all the trouble, which was a me first situation, wasn't it? This thing simply has to come to an end. I was blessed a few weeks ago in a lecture with a new sketch here. And I saw that the total problems of humanity can be resolved into a voluntary nearsightedness. And so here's what we've done with our lives. Our basic problem then is nearsightedness. Here's our eye point over here. Have we made ourselves so big we can't see beyond ourselves? We're so big in our own eyes. A meal-centric life, we can't even see others. And God is way down the distance, we can't see Him. We're so important in our own choice. And there can't be any salvation in this scheme, can there? It's wrong. It's not intelligent. There can't be any happiness in the matter. You can't be happy uh, if you're not living in truth. So what's God going to do? Certainly there has to be none of this situation. And so we say that reconciliation... Has to bring about intelligence, does it not? And intelligence, of course, means that the great big me in our lives has to come down to its proper size. So we can see beyond ourselves. So this great big me is not right in front of our vision. And so the big me has to come down where it belongs, doesn't it? have to be small enough so we can see beyond ourselves to others. So others has to get greater and me has to get smaller. Then instead of God being a small item out here in the distance somewhere, there has to be a realization of the dimensions of God. Now I have no idea how any salvation can happen that doesn't change this perspective. There can never be any happiness. This is why a lot of people are restless and rush to the psychologist with their troubles. You can't solve any problems if it's me first. Me and my temper. You don't have a temper, do we? We have developed our temper in selfishness. We've all the consequences of our me first, haven't we? We've been pushing our own self into the forefront and God has to bring an end to this situation. Otherwise, there can never be any happiness. And this is what the Scripture calls, of course, repentance. A willingness to sit down and think that it is wrong to live for ourselves. That it is right to live for God. 
It is right to place ourselves in proper proportion. So we will live an intelligent view of life. And God shall have his supremacy. Others shall have their position. We shall look at ourselves in proper proportion. Isn't this lovely? There never will be any rest of the heart until we become intelligent. We'll learn. And so this certainly has to happen. Then look at the damage we've talked about under depravity. We have fatigued ourselves, haven't we? We've developed wrong imaginations. Oh my, the imaginations. Such a delicate thing, isn't it? So we've all magnified some kind of an imagination of our own selfish gratification of some sort, whatever that may be. And we have disturbed our whole personality, haven't we? In our own pursuit. We fatigued ourselves. We can't be happy, children. We can't live a peaceful, quiet life unless God can do some kind of a miracle. And our emotions are not willing to be tucked back where they belong once they're let out. And there's no end to their uh, explosive demands, is there? And so if God can't find a way to remedy this situation, we just can't be happy children of God. We can't look up into the face of Jesus and worship Him in peace and composure, can we? Then God wants to give us a double helpfulness in this age of blessing. He wants to help us sustain our spiritual life. We talked about those passages in Romans where we become slaves of Jesus, slaves of the love of Jesus. Isn't that a wonderful slavery? Paul says, I was reduced to slavery. When I realized the love of Jesus and what he did for me, he gave himself up for me. He said, I am crucified together with Christ. This must have been some real reliving of the sacred atonement of Jesus, mustn't it? And then he said, I died. But that's wonderful. I, don't, I find I'm not dead. Because the life I now live in the flesh, he said, I'm using the same body, nothing wrong with the body. Can't blame the body for anything. The life I'm now living in the flesh, he said, has a different motivation, a different center. Instead of being me-ocentric, self-orbiting, it is God-ocentric, God-orbiting. And, and what is the motivation of all of this? The Lord Jesus who loved me, he says, and gave himself up for me. So when the Holy Spirit made clear to him what Jesus did for him, this reduced him to slavery. And since Jesus loved so much, our little hearts are drawn out into a newness of relationship. And so God wants to help us in our human lives, doesn't he? To keep us in the sphere of happiness where he can bless us. And then whatever's going to be done has to be done in this world. You remember the positive statement. There shall not enter into heaven anything that defileth. And there's no purification on the way up of any kind. And there's no, no sin is not attached to the bodies we've seen. Jesus said it's from the heart. So whatever changes are going to be have to be in this life, do they not? And so these are the solemn propositions we try to consider on your pages 2 and 3. 
Notice the paragraph in the middle of page 3. We say from these many considerations is overwhelmingly evident that the reconciliation must be accomplished is not a technical proceeding taking place somewhere in the domain of God independent of our vital consciousness but one that demands entrance into the very warp and woof of human personality. You understand the great theories of imputation which uh, seem to give the idea that the whole matter of guilt can be tended to without involving our own personalities. And so God wants to bring us into the solution of things. Uh, it must be that he wants us to be like little children and this must be the loveliest time of life. When a little child has confidence in parents and both parents have their contribution and between a loving parenthood a child sees the satisfaction of everything and here's the serenity of relaxation is it not? And God wants to call us children doesn't he? Must be he wants us to be like this. Jesus said except you be converted and become a little child you shall not enter into the kingdom of God. So this is what the dear Lord wants to do, is it not? Bring us into his affectionate heart and, and uh, give us the bounty of his love. Now then, we can face some of the problems that God would face to bring about the solution. And so our first inquiry here under item three, what are not the problems to be overcome by the means of reconciliation so we try to consider what are not the problems first. And here we have a proposition. Here's a great, great issue to be decided. We say in our first proposition, it is not that God the Father is personally unwilling to forgive sin without full vindictive satisfaction. Now before we discuss any theories, uh, let us turn over uh, to your section 6 and your page 5. And here we give you a whole page and what we call summary. And it's so wonderful that we need to know so little to be saved. When I came to the dear Lord as a boy of 14, I had no theories of the atonement. Thank the Lord I'd heard the glorious gospel my whole life. Thank the Lord for parents and pastors and Sunday school teachers. Those who worked with us, trying to influence us. We're going to thank them many times someday, aren't we? I saw a dear lady uh, after I hadn't seen her for about 30 years. And she worked with us young people with such a compassionate love. Maya felt grateful to her. And so many have contributed to our recognition of the truth, have they not? But really, we know, need to know very little to be saved. And we don't need any theory to be saved. And that's what we try to say on this page. I put my conversion this way. The historical Christ I always heard about became the personal Christ that I needed and as the Holy Spirit showed me the selfish intentions and plans of my life and the selfish involvements that I'd had in my life, 
I felt under such deep conviction that I needed a Savior. So the historical Christ became personalized to me. And this is what has to happen to every single person who's going to be saved. There has to be a personalized Savior brought to realization in our hearts and minds. And that's what we try to develop upon this page. Look at the middle of the page approximately. The sentence there starting with the Bible. The Bible does not systematize all the reasons for the necessity of the awful event of the sufferings of Christ. The Bible does state, however, that in some vital sense the sufferings of Christ from a broken heart over the world's sin during a brief duration of time unto death were substituted for the endless punishment of sinners as a measure of righteous forgiveness of sins when other necessary conditions are met. Beyond this, we do not need to go, and so on. Then look down in the next paragraph, uh, the third line. We are saved when? We have allowed ourselves to be exposed in the illumination of the Holy Spirit to the gruesome fact that the Lord Jesus Christ has come into our world and has suffered the agony of death because of our very sins, have thus been humbled under the guilt of our sins in repentance, and have committed ourselves wholly in faith to the Savior's sufferings as the only means of forgiveness. So we have that simple passage, don't we? John 1, 12, as many as received him, as we've already mentioned, this must mean all that Christ is and did for us. His total personality, His supremacy, of course. As Jesus said, the kingdom of God is in you. It must be that we're willing to have Jesus as our king. To them gave He power to become the sons of God. May I mention this very emphatically? Let's present as little theory of the atonement as we need to present to bring people into the realization of what dear Jesus had to do for them that they might be saved. There is no need to accept any theory of the atonement in salvation. There must be a realization of what dear Jesus had to do for us. We have read that beautiful summary of the dear Savior in 2 Corinthians 8 9. And this is dear Paul's way of preaching as I understand it. He said here, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich in his eternal deity from all eternity, yet for your sakes he became poor, absolute poverty, that you through his poverty might be rich, might become rich. And so as I sit and meditate as to what the eternal Son of God had to do that I might be forgiven. There's only one result of this meditation. As the Holy Spirit makes it real, that is a humbling of our lives. We say to ourselves, is my selfishness that bad in the, in the eyes of God? That Jesus will have to do all this that he might forgive me. It must be very, very tragic in God's great domain that I've lived like I have. And since Jesus has done all this for me, it's unthinkable that I shouldn't leave this way of living and be willing, of course, if He'll forgive me and take me to His heart, 
Of course, he can have my damaged life to work into it whatever he can do. And this is the gospel we are to preach as I understand it. But tragically enough, especially in America and some other evangelical impressed countries, people have theories of the atonement whereby they suppose that past, present, and future sins are all tended to. We have God's earnest servants saying, in five minutes you can settle your eternal destiny. They don't explain how this could be. They make this statement upon what they had been told, apparently, not upon what they've worked into, it would seem. So they say, in five minutes now, you can have your past, your present, your future sins all tended to, and we can guarantee you an eternal security, salvation. Now this gets very, very complicated, as we've said, this is the theory I was taught in my theological education and had the unthinkable difficulties with the nature of the atonement in this matter. This, of course, involves a literal payment of every single iota of guilt that we ever have achieved up to the moment and that we ever will achieve to the point of, of our death. Uh, one Bible scholar said not long ago, if it was five minutes of our Christian life that was not literally paid for in the atonement, we could not be saved. This dear scholar, of course, held the divided motive that we talked about, the divided will, a plus and a minus. And so it becomes immensely important for us to see, as simple as we can, what is the concept of the atonement. And when people have these theories, We've got to work at the situation of studying all the passages that have anything to say about it and try to propose a theory that would represent what seems to be a closer reality to what actually has taken place. And so we have given you, at great effort, a three-page summary on the concept and the historical opinions of the atonement. This is at the end of your section six, you will notice. And this was a very intriguing restudy of the matter. Several times in my life I have gone into the historical viewpoint. Having only three pages of space here, I had to take what I had written and reduce it down to these three pages. So this represents the, the concepts of atonement that seem to have been held in the history of the church. And uh, we see uh, four main ideas coming from them, as you notice, as you look down into the capitalized headings there. We have the concept of satisfaction theory, they say. This has the idea of a literal payment of guilt. Now it is so exciting... To observe from history that what has come to be the common view in evangelical circles only goes back to Reformation times. In the early and middle 1500s, 
and didn't come to be expressed as we now have it until the 1600s. So here we have a theory that has come to be widely held that is such comparative recent derivation. When I was taught this theory in my study, the professor indicated that you, these views existed right on back to New Testament times. There's no reputable historian that will ever dare to say any such thing as this. And it was so exciting to go through my historical books again and try to make this digest to see that right on through history there was a refusal of the leaders to calculate a strict literal payment for the guilt of sin. And you have to get all the way up to the 1100s, 1098, until the British clergyman Anselm wrote what is conceived to be the first systematic treatise on the atonement. And so he brought up the idea of an absolute total satisfaction. However, it is not the satisfaction, a system that was expressed by the reformers and by post Reformation times. So it becomes immensely important to relax yourself and to try to think through the situation. Notice how wrong the church can be. Because in early centuries, there were those who said that the atonement was made to Satan. Satan had to be bought off and paid to. Now what right would Satan have over anything? Satan only has control of those who choose to let him. Anyone who wants to live a me first life, Satan will help us, won't he? He says, won't you be in my kingdom? And he said, I own the kings of the world, and Jesus didn't counteract that. He says, yes, you do. Tragically enough. And so we see this was held for a period of time. Then we have uh, some great writers, we Athanasius, who took such a wonderful stand around uh, 370, 350 maybe in that area for the deity of Christ and so on, made a great statement there, but refused to go along with a calculation. And we come all the way down to Anselm, as I said. However, he said that Christ worked in obedience and imputed his obedience to He never said that Christ paid for the guilt. And so we have to, and then there were others who objected to his presentation. So we have to come all the way down to, to the reformers uh, until we see this, the concept of the atonement beginning to be developed as we now have it. And so Luther and Calvin affirmed the, the payment part, that Christ literally paid for all guilt. Here we have the great mass of guilt, do we not? And here was a literal payment. And then as I have said, it remained to post-Reformation times in further theological development to have the full perspective that is now being advocated. Uh, you notice... Uh, a little sketch here that we will look at, uh, which uh, represents the, the idea involved here. And my, if I didn't struggle with this. Here we have our time element again. Here we have our birth point. Here we have our moral accountability point. Here we have our death. In between moral accountability, we have millions of wrong actions that we've committed. 
And they've either got to be paid for or forgiven. And this concept, the atonement, is they're paid for to the tiniest iota. Now you understand, of course, that there's no payment now going on. So whatever has been paid for was paid for over 1,900 years ago. If this is going to be the strict judicial salvation, then of course you have to have eternal now in God. Of course you have total foreknowledge. God has to know every single wrong thought that we're ever going to commit from the time of our accountability to our deaths. If this is going to be the technical judicial justification program that so many are advocating. And so there has to be the literal uh, gathering of every single action and imputing it to Jesus. So he pays for it. Now right away you see that under no thought can this be general. If the Lord Jesus died for the whole world of mankind like this, then everybody's going to be saved, of course. And this is what the universalists said. And afflicted England and afflicted America in the uh, centuries here about 200 years ago. The positive part of this, which Anselm advocated, was the literal imputation of Christ's righteousness. So we're supposed to have our guilt paid for technically and absolutely, and we're supposed to stand in a perfect imputation of Christ's righteousness. So Jesus is supposed to obey for us. The difficulty with this is that Jesus had to obey for himself, and he couldn't obey for us. And so the scripture tells us, as we have read in, in Galatians chapter 4, where Jesus was made under the law. And he came into our sphere of existence, didn't he? And was subject unto the law. So Jesus had to obey for himself. He couldn't obey for us or anyone else. He was under the law himself. Had to obey for himself, didn't he? But since he had no sin, he didn't have to die for himself, did he? So he could die for us. And so this had such involvement that I began to search and wonder uh, whether such thing as this could possibly be true. And so you see the great development historically that's taken place. You notice the other headings we give you in this study. And we're so limited in what we can discuss here. There came a great thought process that we're not to look at God as the injured party. We rather look at God as the moral governor. The governor of the moral universe. And he's got problems in his government. The first group of study, of course, conceive of God as, as the injured party. And then here is a redirection. And I got so excited to find a statement about 375 in that area. Uh, to this effect of God as a moral governor. Then as you go on in this subject, you see the moral influence theory. And then finally, the ethical theory, when all we need is an example. And we will remark a little upon this. And this is a major issue for us to work with. And I trust that every one of us will give our very, very best attention and look over that summary sheet that we give you there, auxiliary sheet, where we call your attention to the statement of forgiveness versus judicial justification. And to see the simplicity of what's involved here, and then we want to go on to see what are the simplest concepts we can have concerning the sacred atonement.